Genesis 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin, and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads, I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. 
The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot at his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priced of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields uh, surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, uh, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Father, please take this ancient story and apply it to us today and show us what you want us to know about yourself and about ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I think we come to the key hinge, the pivotal point of this whole Joseph story. What we've seen over the past couple of weeks, in some ways, 
sets the scene for this. So, you know, Joseph's been, you know, sold into slavery by his brothers. He's gone to live with Potiphar. He's been accused of something he didn't do, uh, thrown into prison, um, been able to interpret some dreams for two others in the prison. And then what we'll come to over the next couple of weeks will flow out of what happens in this amazing chapter. First thing to say is this is big today, and I think we need to get ready for a big picture focus. Things turn out extraordinarily well for this guy, Joseph. I'm sure you'd have to agree. But the story actually points us, as does every story in the Old Testament in some way, points us to something even bigger than that. And that is the blessing that comes to us, the reason that we're sitting here today, the blessing that comes to us through Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at the story first, and we'll spend most of our time on that. And then we'll ask two questions. How does this story point to Jesus? And secondly, what do we take away from this story ourselves? So firstly, the story itself. And we left Joseph last week in prison, alone and forgotten. Actually, we didn't leave him in prison. Someone else did. But before we go too far, uh, we too should remember the depths from which we've come as recipients of God's grace through the gospel. We come to God as captives too. We come to God as sinners uh, in a desperate state before God, captive to our sin, as the scripture tells us, dead in our sin, as Ephesians 2 tells us, enemies of God because of our sin, as Romans 5 tells us. Our situation with Christ is actually in some ways way worse than that of Joseph in prison. And yet Joseph is really as good as dead, right? Now we've seen that God has been looking after him along the way and blessed him and blessed his captors through him. But there is a big problem, and that is that he has lived his entire adult life exiled from his home and from his family, enslaved and now imprisoned. And last week we thought about, you know, what that would feel like to be in that situation. And now he is forgotten by his only human hope, this cupbearer who was restored to Pharaoh's court, but has obviously become distracted. Of course, Joseph is not forgotten by God, and neither are you. There are three pairs of dreams that God gives in these chapters. We saw two of those pairs already, and, and we see in today's text that when dreams come in pairs, that there is a special indication there of God's firm intentions about what he's going to do. All these matters are firmly decided already by him. He has a plan of action. It's just a question of letting people know about it and letting it unfold. It's true for us too, isn't it? God has a plan of action. Uh, he lets us know about it and then he lets things unfold. The climactic Dreams are these two here, two violent dreams given to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Dreams of cannibalistic cows. Don't know if you've ever seen that. Or even cannibalistic grain. Now, what's that? Now, maybe the dreams 
Maybe, you know, maybe they were graphic in their details as these you know, cows ate each other up. Or maybe it was just the ideas in them that were confronting and disturbing for Pharaoh. But whatever the case, this king wakes up in a sweat. I don't know if you've ever had a, a child wake up uh, in a, after a night terror and they're sort of staring at you and you can tell that they're just traumatised by what they've just seen in their heads and they haven't quite come into the real world yet. Well, Pharaoh wakes up deeply troubled. Part of the problem is Pharaoh is divine, right? Well, at least he's been raised with that self-understanding. This is really important. And he would have been treated by all of his subjects according to that notion. That's who he was. He was, the, I guess, the, the God King. And dreams, of course, were part of the way that these divine kings would make decisions because they could see the unseen realities, or maybe past, present or future realities that others couldn't see, and then the kingdom could rise or fall on these hidden realities, and he can tell he's just had a really big one, but he has no idea what it's about, and worse still, it seems like it's a little bit of an omen. And he wakes up thinking, I've got to get to the bottom of this. So he does what he normally does and he consults his dream experts, the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Now you've got to be pretty confident, right, in this kind of context if you think you know what Pharaoh's dreams are about. You know, what if he changes the direction of the whole kingdom on the basis of your interpretation of his dream? You'd better hope you got it right. You know, there's always a pole lying around waiting to be impaled on, apparently. And no one seems to want to volunteer on this occasion. But suddenly the cupbearer has a flashback. He tells Pharaoh about this young Hebrew man who had correctly interpreted a pair of dreams given to him and the less fortunate baker two years earlier. And Joseph is summoned from the prison to the royal court. Now, Hebrew men typically wore beards. People in prison also typically wore beards. Egyptians, on the other hand, didn't like hair anywhere on their body for that matter. So when it tells us that Joseph shaved, he may not have just been his beard, he may have shaved his whole head and chest. The point is, right here, he's adapting for the purpose of standing before the ruler of the land. He doesn't want his appearance to offend. So I guess the question is, just how much does he adapt? You know, does he tone down his witness to God's truth in the presence of the great king? I mean, this is probably, you know, we're not putting a fine point on this. This is probably the most powerful ruler in the whole ancient world at the time. Things could go very badly for him if he says the wrong thing or if he says it in the wrong way. And you know the one thing you don't want to say to the most powerful man in the world who actually thinks of, that he, of himself as God over the world? You don't want to say anything that sounds like you're not actually in control, Pharaoh. Joseph is standing before a stratospherically large ego. I've heard that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. 
says Pharaoh. What Pharaoh is actually saying is, you're about to hear a dream and you're about to interpret it. What's Joseph's response? Not me. It's literally one word in the original and not me is probably the most concise way of translating that. Not me. I don't think he paused too long though before giving the second part of it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph hasn't gone soft here at all. He is effectively claiming to be the mediator between Pharaoh, the God, and some other greater God. Pharaoh goes for it and describes the dream in full detail. Seven really ugly cows. Imagine them. Scrawny and lean. So ugly that he has to repeat the fact that they were ugly. They were the ugliest cows that had ever been seen in Egypt. And even after each of these ugly cows has had a great big meal of an entire fat, healthy cow, they're still as ugly as before. What is going on with these ugly cows? Same happens with the withered, thin and scorched heads of grain. No change after a big meal. And then we come to Joseph's interpretation. He says, these two dreams, they're about the same thing, Pharaoh. And that is this, that God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. That's a key phrase there in verse 25, and he repeats it in verse 28 and repeats it again in verse 32. That's partly how we, we pick what the key phrases are. And the, the point is that God is about to act. And he's telling you what he's about to do. God who? You know, are we talking about Ra, the sun god in Egypt? Or are we talking about Tefnut, the rain god with the unfortunate name? Now, Joseph is referring to a sovereign, supreme God in a land very with, in which gods and spirituality were a great curiosity. Here is this access to this supreme God and indicating that he here is the mouthpiece for that God. He goes on, God is about to give you seven years of abundance, that is, rain and good crops. And they will be immediately followed by seven years of famine, that is, no rain, no crops. And they're going to be ugly, uglier than you've ever seen. Now, I don't know a great deal about farming. I probably shouldn't say too much, otherwise you'll realise how much I don't know. But I, but I gather from my friends that uh, now is around the time of year when many farmers will decide whether to plant a crop or not. I'm seeing a couple of nods, I don't know. Shake your head if I'm on another planet. Uh, but we've had some rain this week. Will it be enough to get a crop going? No rain, no crop, no food, no income. What happens if that happens seven years in a row for all the farmers in a country at a time in history when you can't just ship in grain from overseas? Well, things are looking pretty grim in Egypt. And it wouldn't take much for a major food crisis to have shockwaves, destabilizing shockwaves in Pharaoh's empire. Joseph has not smoothed over the bad news here. But his interpretation of the dreams, interestingly, also includes a brilliant 
plan of action. You are going to need, Pharaoh, a discerning and wise man to lead Egypt through this, Joseph says. Now, I genuinely don't think Joseph is thinking it could be him. I don't think he's got the foggiest clue. I mean, remember, he, he just woke up in prison that day, right? And he's, he, here he is, uh, standing in the Oval Office, as it were, uh, playing the role of a prophet of doom, But this brilliant plan has other aspects, taxation commissioners around the place to take 20% of the grain produced during the good years, along with a storage plan. All would need to be done under Pharaoh's authority, so there's not looting and so all that kind of stuff. It needs to be done properly. These food reserves could then be used to be distributed uh, during the famine. Well, Pharaoh's been sitting there, he's been pondering as Joseph's been speaking, and he, he believes him, and, and he likes the plan. And so do his officials, they're all nod, nod, nod. And he turns to his officials and asks them an, an extraordinary question, verse 38, and perhaps they were expecting something different. They're expecting him to turn to them and to pick one of them for the prize political opportunity of taking up this job. Pharaoh, unfortunately, asks can we find anything like this man in whom is the spirit of God? He's talking about Joseph. I think it's amazing that Pharaoh has been able to recognize God's spirit in this prophetic dream interpreter. Almost definitely a God moment, isn't it? Insight and wisdom and even humility from the one who himself is supposed to be Divine. And he says to Joseph in verse 39, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You've got all the divine credentials required for leadership in Egypt. That's, that's what a leader has. Uh, Joseph, of course, is picking his jaw up off the floor at this point. Pharaoh goes on, you shall be in charge of my palace. What? And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. He then puts him in charge of the whole kingdom of Egypt. I'll be the head of state, but you'll be the prime minister. You'll run the government. Just like that. He takes off his royal ring, a sign of his authority, and he sticks it on Joseph's finger. He gets him some fine linen robes. And a gold chain. You can imagine one of those sort of Egyptian round, you know, big gold chains around Joseph's neck. A bit later on, he gives him a wife, fits him out with a chariot. I'm sure it was, sure it was the latest model. And uh, gave instructions that wherever he goes in it, people should say, make way. Now, I'm just thinking about Joseph crawling up into bed that night. You know, he's got his fine linen sheets and his embroidered blanket and, you know, duck down pillow and and he's he's got someone over him with one of those big fans you know <laughs> just take the a bit of cool breeze while he's trying to get to sleep <laughs> and he's thinking that was a good day wasn't it <laughs> the passage then scans forward to the years that follow sure enough there are seven years of storing up so much grain that they give up keeping records there is just this sheer abundance from God's hand 
And to add to Joseph's blessings, he has two little boys. One of them he names Manasseh, which sounds like the word forget. God has let him forget all his troubles. That's a good name. And Ephraim, which sounds like the original word for twice fruitful. That also is a great name because, you know, every time Joseph is made fruitful by God, there's this second fruitfulness which is passed on to others. It's not just Potiphar. It's not just the prison warden who benefit from God's blessing on Joseph. And, but it's also, notice what happens here, the, the famine hits, but Egypt has food. And it's not just the Egyptians who are saved, verse 57, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Hundreds of thousands, potentially millions, are saved by this blessing. It's a good name for his son, isn't it? Twice blessed. And what happens to Pharaoh? Well, his kingdom is expanded, isn't it? His people can eat. He has a guaranteed source of income. You know, this grain was sold. It wasn't just given away. It, was not, it wasn't charity. Well, talk about reversals. Have you ever seen anything like this? This man, Joseph, is a faithful servant of God. I'm sure he knew that God had the ability to do these kinds of things. But how amazing. He could never have imagined this in a million years. Centuries on, however, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, would utter these words about God. It turns out this is a bit of a pattern, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes. But Hannah says these words, The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. Brothers and sisters, our God is this God of reversals. It's the same God. Don't think that if you make yourself strong, that what his job is to, to do is to shore you up. That's not how he works. No, if you're faithful in your weakness, that's... That's how he exalts. He exalts the weak and the poor and the needy. No matter what you think your, your struggle is or your uncertainty in life is, God knows exactly what it is. He is able to lift you up and will do so in good time. We have here, you know, not just a player in amongst a bunch of gods competing to, to sort of make things happen we have here the sovereign, the one who controls history. How do you control history? Well, I, we, we don't know, but it ain't Pharaoh who controls history, and it ain't the presidents and the supreme leaders of the world today who control history. Maybe we need to think about that a little bit when we worry about things like terrorism or we worry about the stratospherically big egos in control of the world's nuclear arsenals. There's nothing they can do to thwart God's plan. Nothing. That's not to say there won't be crises in the world. There's a massive crisis in the middle of this Bible passage we've just been looking at. 
It doesn't mean that there won't be times of panic in the world where hundreds of thousands of people are queuing, hoping that there'll still be grain left for them when they get to the front of the queue. But for God's people, there doesn't ever need to be panic. Because no matter what happens, and even through what happens, God is working his purposes out. That was true for Joseph, and it is true all through history. We have the peace of Christ, which transcends all understanding. So now to our two questions. Question one, how does this story point to Jesus? Look, it points to him in so many ways. Um, We've got to be a bit selective. The point is God works his purposes out in a multi-layered, it's a multi-layered way in which he does that. So through the events of this particular day, multitudes are saved from starvation. But then as we'll see next week, there are also 11 others in particular who will be saved, the other sons of Jacob, along with their children. It's the the embryo of this, this nation that would grow, the nation of Israel that would emerge, God's own nation, his special precious possession, they would be saved through this. And then although Israel would fail through her sin to be God's vehicle of blessing to the world, one Israelite in particular, one descendant from this family that's going to be saved next week, he would not fail. Jesus would be born as the saviour of all people. So God is working his purposes out ultimately through Jesus, the saviour not just, not just from our problems of starvation, but our problems of being captives to sin, the problems of being enemies of God, the problems of being dead because of our sins. So if we flick forward in our heads to Ephesians chapter 2, which rather than pointing forward to Jesus is looking back at Jesus, the the chapter starts incidentally as if it's our death certificate. It says, you know, we're dead in our sins. But it goes on to put it this way. "Because Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And then God raised us up. Notice, he raises the poor from the ash heap. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's our new spiritual reality. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, in the Joseph story, we see more than just the ancestral provision for this saviour of ours. I think we actually see a pattern for how God works, a pattern that appears repeatedly in the Bible, a pattern that firms up our hope, I think, because it tells us over and over this is how God does things. And the pattern is um, the many ways we can describe this. It was in Psalm 113 that Steve read at the beginning. It was in that, that description of, uh, of, from Hannah a few moments ago. Well, what, he, what he does, there's a couple of elements. There's three elements to this I just want to point out. One is that he, he, he reveals what he's going to do. He fulfills what he's going to do. 
And the way he's going to do it is by exalting the Savior who's going to do it. It's a pattern. And so the, the revelations for Joseph, Joseph, they came through a series of dreams. The revelations about Jesus come as this, the whole Old Testament, all of these 39 books, uh, they, they sit unfulfilled on, on the night of Jesus, to before Jesus arrives. And yet, and yet that next, on that night of his birth in Bethlehem, they're fulfilled. We don't see all the fulfillment until Jesus is, is, um, is, he grows older and he dies and is risen from the dead. But he would sort out this extraordinary problem of human sin and then everything is fulfilled by Christ. You think of this idea of exaltation. It was, it was only through Joseph's exaltation that he would be able to save these people. That was the, the, the nature of it. So too, the exaltation of Jesus. He's the one who humbles himself and is obedient to death on a cross. That's the pattern of his life. And what happens to him? God exalts him to be our eternal saviour. And so what happens is that he, that he now stands in heaven. He is our advocate standing before the Father, our, our representative, and he presents to us his righteousness as a gift. That righteousness is the guarantee of our new life. And so if he hadn't been exalted in his resurrection from the dead, then we would still be in our sins. And yet through his exaltation, we saw in Ephesians just a moment, he is by the Father's side. We are spiritually sitting beside him. Our salvation is made possible by his exaltation. That's why you can't separate the cross from the resurrection. They go together. So that pattern is God reveals, God fulfills. And the way he does it is by exaltation of his saviour. So finally, question two, what do we take away from this today? It's really the so what question. And I want to finish with two truths and one suggestion. The two truths, God is in control and God is good. God is in control and God is good. From where we sit in history, we don't just see his ability to influence the kingdom of Egypt in order to provide food. We see the whole big picture. We see Jesus on the cross the empty tomb, the pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost, the growth of the church, the revelations of heaven to John. And seeing that, we know that this all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God is for us. That's what you see when you see all this extraordinary gospel news unfolding Jesus says don't worry about your life what you will eat or drink what you will wear what will happen to you God is in control and God is good so finally the suggestion I'm struck as I read this text today that at the heart of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams is a call to action 
a call to action. Appoint a man, appoint commissioners, collect the food, store the grain, use the food during the famine. The suggestion today is take your part. Act. Faith without works is dead. If you know that famine follows plenty, you store. Well, so what do we know and what, and what do we need to do? Now, we know that Jesus is the saviour whose salvation is available for everyone in Victor Harbour, everyone in the world. But do they know it? Do your friends and family know it? What about your neighbours? Have you connected with them? Have you invited them into your home? Have you told them about your life and what's important to you, including what you know about Jesus? Is Christ stored up in a, in a bunch of grain silos in Victor Harbour? Trying to get out. Is this the time for storing our grain? Or is this the time for distributing the grain? Keeping salvation behind our walls? Or pouring out the salvation for the hungry and needy? So brothers and sisters, let us take our part. Let us think about what this means for us, this message. What we have in the gospel, it's a lot better than the grain they had in the silos in Egypt. But it needs to go out. Let's take our part. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we ask that you would help us to do what... Uh, what is required for this time. Help us to have the boldness of Joseph who stood before the most powerful man in the world and told him the truth. Help us to have that boldness as we speak the truth. Our Father, we look to you as the one who is completely in control, the one who is perfectly good. You love us, you are for us. You've done all this extraordinary work of salvation throughout the history of humanity. And, you, and, and it's all culminated uh, and beautifully fulfilled in our Saviour Jesus, whom we love. We thank you for the salvation we have in him. We just pray that our words of praise for him will be overflowing to each other and to those we know who don't know him. Our Father, may, may our words be true and full of love and bring salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.